Hello, Dr. Bob. Thank you for joining. Hello, Atiti. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, I've been looking forward to our conversations. Um, and I had a trial run with Dr. Gallagher a few weeks ago. It was basically in April. And we talked about the fatigue failure mechanism, a book that you published in collaboration with him in 21. So I've been looking forward to meeting you since then in our conversation. I'm glad you also got to meet Sean. He's a wonderful, a wonderful colleague and friend. Oh, sure. And I've been telling everybody how rock and roll he is. <laughs> so I've created like this group of people now who are really excited to meet him. <laughs> I didn't know that about him. I'm excited too now to hear him. <laughs> Let's see. Yeah. Fingers crossed. I'm, I'm hoping to get him to play something for us. I'm not sure. I don't think he's going to be very open to it, though. We'll I will try. <laughs> okay. I'm going to rope you into that project as well then. Okay. <laughs> okay. So uh, we do research into all of our speakers. And um, the one thing that we're always curious to know is uh, what got you interested in the field of musculoskeletal health in the first place? How did you get here? So my father is a doctor, my mother's a nurse, nurse practitioner, master's in public health, master's in epidemiology. Um, <laughs> my father's an ophthalmologist, but he was a country doctor first. And so the, um, to be honest, it began because of them, because they would have all these conversations at the dinner table about what they did at work that day and saw and everything. And it really like... I just made, um, I don't know, patient care and, and, um, and everything like a regular conversation in the house. And, and, um, then my father had a whole big collection of the netters, the netters anatomical studies, the medicine netters. And my sister, I have a twin and I would pour over these pictures with great interest about the anomalies and the anatomy and the musculoskeletal things and 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 that was my childhood so it was kind of the die was set and so when I went to um at, when I was in high school I decided I wanted to go into science and biology and chemistry my parents were very surprised because they thought I was going to be a pianist um, because I was classically trained at that time with violin and piano and then a lot of lessons for many, many moons. And so they thought I was, they were like, what? And I'm like, no, I'm bi science. And so I um, got my biology degree and then I knew that um, I didn't know enough when I finished my biology degree. I'm like, wait, I don't know enough yet. Those so those books weren't enough. I know. So I loved anatomy. I took every anatomy course in my college um, because anatomy is musculoskeletal biology. So I took anatomy for med students, anatomy for nursing, anatomy for, you know, biologists. I took, I just took it all. And, um, and so I knew I had to go to anatomy and anatomy, um, is at that time, the classical anatomy was, um, uh, gross anatomy, microanatomy, which is histology, neuroanatomy, um, embryology. So I took all those classes and then you, in those years, you would teach them in all those classes um, so that you had a lot of training to become um, a faculty member in that. And then I finished my postdoctoral training in neuroscience 
and started my faculty position. And I was doing neuroscience mainly then, developmental neuroscience. But I joined a physical therapy department in a college of health profession. And there were a lot of people who were very into musculoskeletal um, projects. And that's how I started my project now is with a colleague, Dr. Ann Barr, who's at Pacifica University now in Oregon. And we developed the RAT model of musculoskeletal injuries that Sean and I were writing about also in that book. And um, that is, that was, began in 1998. And I've been funded to do that ever since. So. That's brilliant. A couple of things stand out to me. One, I was reading Tintin when I was a kid. <laughs> like comic <laughs> books, but the latest books were your comic books. That's amazing. <laughs> so the dominoes were sort of set up since you were a kid. That's funny. I guess that's true. I really like that. <laughs> that got me like, oh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> that explains why I'm a comic, because <laughs> I read Tintin. <laughs> Oh, it's really funny. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, um, that's how I started, though. It was just early exposure. Yeah, early exposure, yeah. And also, you and Dr. Gallagher can make quite a team because you're also classically trained, and so is he. Yes, he's classically. Yes, you're right. Oh, gosh, in music. I got you. I got you. <laughs> So your current research focuses on the role of repetitive motion and muscle overuse in the development of musculoskeletal disorders, which I'm just going to call MSDs because that's that's quite the wordplay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So can you provide insights into the underlying mechanisms that contribute to the pathophysiology of these disorders? Well, I can, and I like to call it WMSDs or something like that because mine is work-related MSDs. Yeah. As opposed to, I also go to the Orthopedic Research Society meeting and musculoskeletal disorders can be trauma, you know, like acute trauma driven or um, a, a underlying pathology that might be way beyond the work related repetitive in, you know, motion injury mm -hmm. induced MSDs. So mine's particularly focused on the ones that is the acute to chronic, really like what's causing the chronic repetitive, forceful induced MSDs. Mm -hmm. And the underlying mechanisms really begin with what is like really the, the title of the book with Sean, the fatigue failure, yeah. how much repetitive, forceful movements are too much. Mm. So normal repetitive movements like walking, yeah. exercise, walking is a repetitive motion. Um, chewing gum, there's a repetitive motion, are not bad for the system. And in fact, they're very good for the system. So repetitive motion at low to moderate force is very good. And it really strengthens the muscles and the tendons and the bones underlying them. Um, the problem becomes when you add a lot of force to the system or too much repetition or in the the work-related musculoskeletal field in the Primus Society, you'll hear about people talking about duty cycles. Are you over the duty cycle that allows the tissue to repair between the bouts of work? Mm -hmm. So it's like, how much is too much? Mm -hmm. That's the real underlying reality. How much is 
too much for the tissues to repair. So have you done so much force that you broke the tissues, you know, at their microcellular levels, and then that's repeated and the over time and the body can't catch up in the repair. Um, or is it so much that it breaks immediately? You know, it's like a bone fracture or the a tendon avulsion. That's a lot too much. And yeah. that does fall within work-related muscle disorders, but usually that ends up in an emergency room visit and it gets coded differently, right? right? right. But with if we talk about soldiers, you know, we have a lot of war going on right now. Mm-hmm. Um, soldiers also... Re- um, develop repeated musculoskeletal dis- injuries as a consequence of the repeated firing of the guns or the walking with yeah. the constant walking carrying heavy loads because mm-hmm. how much is the how much is that repeat of the gun too much for their hands and their shoulder right. how much load is like loading their knees and their ankles and their back mm-hmm. too much mm-hmm. how much they're you know the amazon delivery people that's our new world they're picking up too many heavy boxes in a repeated motion Mm -hmm. moving it forward onto the conveyor belts and into the trucks how much load is too much how much repetition is too much and how what's the duty cycle to allow for um the repair of the micro damage that occurred in that too much Mm -hmm of the lifting so Mm -hmm. we're really the underlying mechanisms is about micro injury to frank injury of the underlying Mm -hmm. tissue and um you didn't have enough repair time to fix it before you started a new belt of work to injury did that so how yeah that that makes sense um but how does this understanding inform potential preventive and therapeutic strategies for professionals well, um, there are a lot of people in the Primus um, that will that will come to Primus that we talk about duty cycles. What are the best duty cycles to allow for the best repair times between bouts of work? Mm-hmm. Is it like you know you should rest how many times per day, um, or you know not just work your strongest during the day things like you know during the early morning they're like people who work on duty cycles and that Mm -hmm. that that um repair cycle the the whole biology of repair plays into the duty cycle concept um although i will say that i published and i believe this still to be true that we know about the heavy duty but we don't know enough about the light duty rest cycles quite yet Yes, yes. Okay. And that's not the fact that's not been factored in quite mm-hmm. well enough. Mm-hmm. Um, then the prevention for the things that are the most the task of life that are most prone to injury, especially acute injury, um, those are the ones that engineers create machines to avoid. So the engineers that come to Primus are like are going to be presenting on work that how do you avoid that acute injury? Mm -hmm. So like Steve Lavender, I don't know if he's coming, but he often comes to the, the, the ones in the U S he's at Ohio state. 
he um, studies things on how to move people down stairwells for firemen so that firemen are not getting injured. Or Carolyn Summerick, or like healthcare professionals are not being injured by moving patients from bed to bed to bed because that is a healthcare um, example of a work-related musculoskeletal disorder, the constant lifting of patients that are very heavy from a bed to a gurney and then off for like their MRI, for example. So it's prevention, it's the duty cycle, you know, prevention through better engineering. The duty cycle sort of concept that a lot of the engineers do, the people who do healthcare, how do you um, it, it ask people to use the lifters instead of like doing it themselves? And then for me, um, it's um, I'm also trying to focus on pre- um, repair, reversal of the damage. So you've got the damage, how do you reverse it? And there are some people who are working on that. I don't know if Gisela's Shagard is coming, Shogard, Gisela's Shogard is coming, but Karen often comes to the Primus and, um, and they um, work on some of the reversal and what are some of the, sort of you could do, what are some of the things that one should do and sort of like timing of the rest to allow the biology, the immune system to, clean up the damaged site. That's number one in the biology. You, the immune system needs to come and clean up the damage. Mm-hmm. Number two, the um, fibroblast and the fibroblastic-like cells like tenocytes need to lay down new matrix. And then the muscle cells need to lay down new muscles so that you rebuild the tissue that got injured. An injured nerve has to fix its myelin and send out new sprouts and regrow if there was micro damage. So in those processes, the people who are working on rest time, how much is needed, or something like a a regular exercise intervention that enhances blood flow, Mm -hmm. because the blood flow is needed to bring in the nutrients for the tissues, cells to repair themselves. And the blood flow brings in stem cells or uh, that will help activate the repair at the basic biology level of growth. Hmm. That's a lot right there. But so, (laughs) so I, you know, in other words, my work is just at the basic biology level, but I'm understanding what the other people are doing. And I think all of it together is how one can solve the problem of Mm -hmm. musculoskeletal disorder is to have the engineers, um, the people who are planning rest cycles or prevention modes at the worker level. And then people like me who are in there doing what's the basic biology that needs to occur and why. Takes a village. Yes. So this is good. You've gone into such a deep dive on the treatment side of it. Um, And in the last couple of years, you've published papers um, that help practitioners uncover new insights in the way they're assessed and viewed as well. So can you touch a little bit upon that as well? The assessment? Mm-hmm. I think the assessment needs to be more than one thing. Um, because our tissues are like a function, a function, any function you do involves muscle, tendon, mm-hmm. nerve, yeah. underlying bone because the muscles and the tendons attach to the bone. The assessment needs to start with function, and that would be like grip strength 
or uh, that's muscle and pain function, how much can you pull voluntarily versus reflexively? Mm. Um, pain test, um, temperature pain, as well as mechanical pain. A lot of people do like touch. Well, that's a mechanical touch skin test. Um, and, um, and not like a temperature that's a deep nerve sort of like concept or some people develop really nice, have a lot of questionnaires because sometimes pain is, um, in your spinal cord or in your brain as a perception. Yeah. Even though like the tissue repair has begun, you still have the perception of pain centrally. Um, so these questionnaires need to be occur. I, I can't ask my little rats what they're feeling, but we <laughs> observe them. We have a lot of observation tests mm -hmm. that um, are similar to what you would do to observe a child or a patient who can't speak anymore. Mm -hmm. So I study those um, papers and those tests and do similar ones on the my little animal patients. Mm -hmm. And so uh, muscle tests, pain tests, functional tests or outcomes that can then be used for um, humans as well. And I try to use some of the same ones as humans, like the grip strength and the nerve conduction yeah. velocity and the mechanical allodynia and temperature. And then um, the questionnaire concept for humans is like some of the things I write down for um for the rats. And then the last one is imaging. Now I don't have an MRI for imaging, but I have some other imaging methods that I use. I think that um, imaging outcomes are needed. And I've certainly published that with Judith Gold and some people, uh, various people in the Sweden and um, the Swedish universities mm -hmm. on what imaging biomarkers can be used mm -hmm. to as outcomes to see how poor how how involved that patient is that subject yeah. is okay so coming to your animal model um you're going to be talking about that in your keynote speech uh what can uh attendees and listeners expect out of it well um it's really the title says it all like prevention is easy reversal is hard i've done many many assays in prevention um give them an easy task, they get stronger. <laughs> That's the best <laughs> prevention, right? Don't okay. cause the problem in the first place. And, um, and the title of the, of the whole con uh, conference is Prevention of Musculoskeletal Disorders. Yeah. So do something in engineering or planning of the job to prevent the task in the first place. Mm -hmm. If I do that with my rep model, it works the best prevent the problem in the first place by giving by not going to high repetition, high force. In other words, do a low repetition, moderate force or mm -hmm. high repetition, low force. And they generally tend to get better. Or I've done ibuprofen, um, uh, rest cycles in, you know, early on, um, in a variety of drugs that you like, um, uh, anti-inflammatory drugs, um, anti-reverse, anti-fibrosis drugs. Yeah. In the prevention phase, it's easy because I'm just allowing the, I'm taking one thing out, the inflammation, over-inflammation. There's too much inflammation mm. can create tissue damage. Or reducing the fibroblast activity that's laying down the scar tissue. Take that out and the body can pick up the slack. 
-hmm. and the healing occurs in a restorative manner mm -hmm. instead of a um uh, an out of control inflammatory manner or an ex uh, a too much scar tissue manner mm -hmm. so restorative repair means it goes back to the beginning of how it should look as opposed to reparative sort of things where there's scar tissue or chronic inflammatory in reversal um it's hard i've done four weeks of rest six weeks of rest which would be equivalent to almost 12 months in a human mm -hmm. you know if you go right to human time frame mm -hmm. that six weeks of rest would be like a year in a human right. and things if you've got the extreme in scar tissue and chronic inflammation now in the central yeah. axis where you have a chronic pain, yeah. it's not reversing with rest alone. So I've added drugs like anti-inflammatories, anti-fibrosis drugs. A few of them work. And in with rest plus the drug, you have a better outcome than each one alone. But I think that it would also be nice, and what I'm doing now is adding like voluntary running wheel, mm -hmm. um, which they do at night when they're like awake and it's on their own time frame. Mm -hmm. And that increases blood flow and stem cells. Um, I'm not looking at stem cells, but certainly the uh, reduction in the inflammation right. with flow cytometry and things like that. So, um, the reversal can't be a single one thing. There's going to have to be multiple modalities of interventions that must be included for right. reversal to be right. successful. And this is something that a lot of other speakers also have echoed the same sentiment that you need a multidisciplinary approach to address WRMSDs. Sure. Um, so there's a link between muscle fatigue and risk of a muscular work-related musculoskeletal injury. Um, are there, do you have any recommendations for assessment tools or strategies that one can use to evaluate? So muscle fatigue. Yeah, muscle fatigue is a big, um, is a big topic. Um, I gave a talk about it at the last Primus. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and so muscle fatigue is a big pro, um, um, pro, is a big topic. Is it that the, it's like just um, the person is tired, right? And there's one type of fatigue, or is it the actual true muscle fatigue, which would be like injury to the cell membrane and the calcium is leaking out and um and you have an inability to either retrieve that calcium or you're leaking too much because of a leaky cell membrane and so you've got the muscle at a functional bio you know biochemistry functional mm -hmm. disadvantage um or is it that you've got little micro tears in there that are not just the cell membrane but it's actually in like attachment points or is it the nerve that is injured and so the muscle is fatigued in function because the nerve is injured and it's not given enough firing power. Mm. So um, to identify what factors causing the muscle fatigue. Exactly. So that's why when I'm testing my animal model, I'm looking at the function of muscle and nerve. Right. 
not just the one mm. so that I can better interpret is the problem, the muscle is the problem, the nerve. Mm. Yeah. And then I'm doing multiple assays for each of those so that I can decipher, is it voluntary muscle grip strength? Is it a voluntary pulling force, mm -hmm. which is coming out of the central axis? How much do they want to pull? Mm -hmm. <laughs> or is it reflexive grip strength, which I can test easily in the rats. It's harder in human because human is always voluntary. Yeah. But there are ways. That's why they do the tendon hammer test and reflexive test in humans because mm -hmm. you're testing the reflexes at that point. Are yeah. uh, I'm um, so there's a I'm doing a multiple nerve um, and functional assays. I must do twelve assays total, um, in including observations, so I can interpret: mm -hmm. is it the muscle? Is it the nerve? Is it the rat is tired, or is it the rat is just really angry? that it's this uncomfortable and it wants to go back and just take a nap. <laughs> so is it, in other words, is it uh, a central neural axis discomfort or is it peripheral mm -hmm. and things like that? Yeah. And there are assays to do this in humans. We just, when I brought it up, I think, um, a decade ago at Primus, when I was talking, someone said that's too many tests to do to okay. do all this. But um, the fact is, is that a lot of these tests have gotten easier and many people are doing more outcomes mm -hmm. on patients. Although I was just at a meeting and they were saying they're going more toward MRI and away from certain other assays that they used to do to, to mm -hmm. assay patients. They're just moving them through the NRI or moving them through a CAT scan, whichever the hospital has. Yeah. And so whatever the hospital has and whatever they can move the patient through faster, that's the assay they're doing. And it doesn't catch all the functional problems. They won't catch the nerve problems. Right. Right. That's interesting. Okay. Which is a separate conversation that we could have entirely by itself, right? <laughs> <laughs> but so coming back, um, you um, published a paper titled Manual Therapy Research Methods in Animal Models Focusing on Soft Tissues. And you discussed the role of systemic information in the development and persistence of musculoskeletal pain. Um, can you elaborate? And I'm also, I know I'm, this whole episode is just like, can you please elaborate more? But can you talk about the underlying mechanisms under which systemic inflammation influences pain perception and sensitization? Yes, the systemic inflammation is quite a key thing, and it happens in many, many disorders um, that the acute inflammation um, is important for tissue repair. Hmm. It, it, the immune cells come in and they take away the damaged tissue so the new tissue can be laid down. That's good. The problem is, is when you have that acute inflammation in a repeated manner. Yeah. And then the tissue, the, the immune system's like, what? Right? And, and it ramps up too high. And so then mm -hmm. you have too high of an immune response, inflammatory response. Mm -hmm. Or if the tissue injury is too high or too often, then the local inflammatory response becomes too high. And in each of those cases, whether it's the whole systemic immune system, inflammatory system, ramped up too high or if the local inflammatory problem got too high 
in both cases, the um, inflammatory immune cells and cytokines and chemokines spill out into the bloodstream and or uh, ramped up in the bloodstream if it was the whole ramping up mm-hmm. the immune system and become uh, um, testable by gathering blood and taking mm-hmm. blood. That those inflammatory cytokines and macrophages, monocytes in the immune, uh, when they're in the bloodstream, can go to distant sites mm-hmm. and activate immune inflammatory responses at distant sites, right. including your brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they, the macrophages and the cytokines in the peripheral blood talk to the blood brain barrier, which then activates cells that are on the inside of the brain, creating a mirror response to what's happening in the outside mm-hmm. so that your brain now goes into high alert, mm-hmm. alert, alert, something bad's happening, yeah. react, react. And that uh, that enhances the hypothalamic immune, uh, hypothalamic pituitary system with all the hormones and corticosterone mm-hmm. and more cytokines comes out of the brain because you're now in an alert. Yeah. But also that in, that enhanced inflammation then will enhance sort of things first on the blood-brain barrier area, which happens to be some of our pain assay areas. And they will talk to your pain control centers and this constant input of inflammatory mediators signaling the signals will enhance the signaling in your like cingulate cortex and your periactal gray and things that are your pain centers Mm. and then they become enhanced and then the person is in a chronic pain system here this problem may go away but now it's enhanced here the same thing can happen in the spinal cord as well same process, a little less complicated in the spinal cord. It's just the constant input of the sensory um, neuronal firing creates the, the spinal cord central sensitization. So all this is called central sensitization. Yeah. It is the key to chronic persistent pain when you can no longer find it in the periphery. It's because now the central nervous system has activated and that is the key to solving a chronic, persistent, perpetual pain problem. There, it's difficult. There are ways to do it. Yeah. Drug and exercise. 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 Because the exercise is um, resetting those neurons. Mm. A repetitive exercise, walking. Yep. Running is a little harder because it's very hard on your joints, but some people get an endorphin joy from running that resets. So the uh, the endorphins that your and serotonins and things that your body makes when you're doing a regular exercise resets the system and it helps reset even with people with chronic pain. The central I- system. So this reminds me of two conversations that I had. We talked about central sensitization extensively with Dr. Serbel and Dr. Shah, and they were touching upon the same topic, but basically walking me through the same system that you just walked me through, right? And they were talking about why working on that is important. And Dr. Lipton works with patients who have fibromyalgia. 
and she was telling me that she tells her patients she doesn't use the word exercise but she says that therapeutic movement is important oh that's good because see people think exercise i have i have one um friend with chronic fibromyalgia and she goes to the doctor and she wants a pill and the mm-hmm. doctor says well no you need to exercise and then she's like she calls me on the phone and she goes what do you mean exercise and i'm like well i even have my rats exercise it's a real treatment I use it as an actual therapeutic treatment. I really like what she's saying, therapeutic movement. It was the same thing with manual therapy. You asked me about the manual therapy. The manual therapy is getting in there and it's not just releasing the fibrotic tissue from the periphery, in the periphery. It's also helping to move the blood flow and the lymph out so that you're moving the inflammatory mediators out of the involved tissue. But there's also the touch, the aspect of touch. There's a pleasure to being touched and manipulated. And that's, that's, that's um, driving little mechanosensors in your skin, in your muscles, in your joints that are pleasant. There's actually pleasant neurons that, that assay pleasantness Mm-hmm. We don't talk about it too much in neuroscience, but we have in in the last five years more. And there's a Nature Review article that adds it um, it's within that came out in the last ten years. But this this pleasantness of the touch will then stimulate the nervous system centrally. Oh, that's pleasant, mm-hmm. and that also releases the endogenous endorphins, the serotonins, the everything that makes you feel better. So the manual, even the rats, they're like, you know, you're going to like massage their arm and they're like, (laughs) yes, please, because it actually feels good. So, so manual therapy goes both ways. It's like a peripheral treatment and a central treatment as is, I like that. um, What you call it? Therapeutic movement. Yes. Yep, I'm just borrowing that word from Dr. Lipton. (laughs) (laughs) I look forward to meeting meeting Dr. Lipton. She's amazing. She's brilliant. I'm in awe of her. (laughs) Oh, that's great. So um, you're also doing a workshop with Dr. Gallagher, is that right, on fatigue failure mechanism? Yes, we did shorten it from 16 hours to 8 because we were wondering, are we just going to read the book out loud? We felt Page number 201. Everybody move your pages. <laughs> I know. I was really kind of worried about that. And so it's now reduced to a day. And 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 um, he sent me an email. I haven't had a chance to read it, how we're going to divide it up. But essentially, there's engineering. Um, he does. A, he's the engineer, the bioengineer. Yeah. Yeah. And we had the engineering aspect and understanding of, of um, tissues and how they're responding to strain and overstrain mm-hmm. and um and and how they're repairing from an engineering sort of aspect mm-hmm. but i'm in there i have the stuff that i'm talking about how each and every tissue has its own aspect of repair and and amount of blood vessels and amount of stem cells and that alters how much you repair if you don't have Blood, blood flow, nutrients, and you don't have stem cells, you don't repair. That's mm-hmm. cartilage. So cartilage damages because it doesn't have enough blood flow and it doesn't, right. it doesn't have any blood flow. It's just 
like nutrient diffusion mm -hmm. and there are very few stem cells and it doesn't repair well as a consequence. So, but some tissues like muscle have tons of each of those. So it repairs quite quickly. So that's where I'm coming in is like the biologist giving the biology thing. And then he's the engineering. And then where did we come together um, toward the end? Which yeah. goes to show how important collaboration between different people across the system is. Um, it's, it's a, it, and every conversation that I've had, it's become crucial uh, it's become very clear to me how crucial um, this collaboration is in addressing work-related musculoskeletal disorders effectively. It's quite a mouthful. <laughs> um, but that, makes, that makes me think of something that we all need to consider. Um, uh, 130, 150 years ago, we considered the body a sensitium. And you wanted, we considered the body a sensitium. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And you wanted to see how someone was, they stuck out their tongue. You looked at their tongue. Yeah. Things like that. You, you know, pulse, tongue, yeah. you know, how did their skin look? Yeah. Um, look at the urine, things like that. Then the microscope got, got developed and we got smaller, 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 smaller. So everything was a cell, hmm. right? And so we went through the, the, the last century with all small, right? And everything yeah. was based on a cell or a tissue type. And that didn't solve the problems. And so now we've moved back mm. out again. Oh. And we're moving back out and we're involving. So when we're treating a patient or looking at a patient, we're looking at multiple systems. And that whole gut biome, you know, gut, brain, gut, muscle, gut, nerve, gut, this, and all the other associated things are this conference, the musculoskeletal system conference, um, has, are bringing us back out and looking at people as a whole being. And in that, like we're bringing, even the conference I was just at for the vagus nerve, we're bringing together engineers, biologists, clinicians um, who do MRI, clinicians who do other functional assays, um, and even um, and a lot of people who do data processing so that you can put it all together in an integrated manner and come out with a better treatment um, for whatever disorder there is. I was just, so that was going to be my question is that, um, one was what successful examples lie about this, and you just gave me an excellent one. But the other is how can healthcare systems encourage and facilitate more such collaborations? Well, now there's a there's a hard problem because that's an international difference, yeah. country to country, of how a healthcare system runs. In the U.S. and some other countries, it's the sadness is um, the insurance companies are getting rich. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And not the patient, certainly, but um, the individual doctor offices and doctors are struggling and uh, even the hospitals are struggling to get the best care because it's being controlled by a third party. Mm. And so the third party um, who pays or who's going to give Medicare or Medicaid or workman's comp becomes part of the problem in the best care. Mm. In the systems where, in the healthcare systems where um, it's just the care of the patient, I'm hopeful there's a little more care. Um, 
The other problem we have is there's always the bottom line. Every country is like outstripping their finances, it seems, even the countries mm-hmm. I didn't think it was going to happen to. And like China, like I didn't expect them to outstrip their finances, and it's certainly right. happening lately. And um, and it's concerning because um, then there's always the push to save more money. And in the saving more money, you cut down on the services to the patient. Mm-hmm. You cut down on the time that the clinician has to see the patient. Yeah. And um, and um, I'm I. Fear that for the next decade that that's going to be an increasing problem. I see the solution perhaps is educating the patient better, so that patients become more engaged in their own care and their own health care, and can navigate the systems better. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of patient care to navigate the system on your own better, yeah. versus have a navigator. If we could have a navigator for patients, it would be best. Some places do. I just heard, I was just talking to somebody with cancer that they have a caseworker who now that they're very sick with cancer is navigating for them mm-hmm. and getting um, patient care out to their house, for example, because they can't go in. Um, but that doesn't always happen that way. There are a lot of people who fall through the cracks. But if we can have base, better patient education to navigate the system, what sort of patient education they can do for themselves, like better nutrition education, better, uh, we're trying, but it's hard to get the the exercise, the movement therapy mm-hmm. concept out there yeah. and embraced by society. Some societies are better than others yeah. so across the world. In the U.S., we're, we're still having a problem with mm-hmm. obesity. So it means we're, we're not doing well in this patient education. Those That's, that's going to be our challenge, how to give the clinician more time mm. to fully test their patient correctly, mm. how to give the healthcare systems enough money or care to give the patient the money versus fill the pockets of the people at the top who, you know, of that healthcare market of the third party and better and better patient education. But yeah, I really like what you told me about that caseworker is that they're navigating the system for them. It was just such a patient centric way of looking at it. It's very, if we can have more caseworkers, like really pay our social service people more, I don't know about your country, but our country, they are the lowest paying in the healthcare. And that's, they're the people who do the casework. Yeah. Same here. It's, it's, they are the future, the physician assistants, the social workers, the caseworkers, they are the ones who can help, I think, enhance patient mm-hmm. care the best. I agree with you. From what I've seen, we have in India, we have this concept called Anganwadis, which is community care workers uh, work with uh, mothers and children in rural areas and urban areas as well. But every community sort of has an Anganwadi. Um, And that it is proven to be a very successful model. So they are the first line of intervention for people, for women mostly. For women mostly. Yeah. Which is important because yeah. women, women raise the family. Yeah. Women support the family. Yeah. And the primary food makers yes. takes food to live. 
takes food to live. <laughs> <laughs> so sort of moving away um, from uh, practitioners, I was wondering if you have any advice for students or people who are newly entering the field or, you know, just beginning their careers in this. I think it's very important for people um, just entering the field and practitioners to go to multiple conferences or read a lot and not just in your field because we have broadened out now and um, into trying to do more um, whole body care, whole person care, the mm -hmm. mind body, you know, the mind body concept. Yeah. Um, and if you're, if you stay siloed in your own specific field while training or while treating, then you're missing out um, or the patient's missing out on some of the new ideas or the best care. So if you, I, I, I've had a long history of immune problems that have magically become quiescent in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. But um, I knew that I, when I went to a, a particular clinician, I would be diagnosed in their wheelhouse, right? right. If I go to a neurologist, a neurological problem. If I go to yes. orthopedist, an orthopedic problem. If I go to, you know, like, see what I'm saying? Yes. And, um, and, and, and if I could get everybody together, I might get the right answer. So I spent a lot of time trying to get all of them together. And mainly I just had to become my, my own best advocate. But I think that if we stay siloed, it's going to be harder. I would advise clinicians and people entering the field to think more broadly than their own field. Go to meetings like the Primus, where it's multiple people coming together. The Orthopedic Research Society has multiple people coming together. Go to those sort of conferences. At, at, and you can still do your own like specific one, but go to a broader conference to get a broader perspective. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's the reason why we all do this. Somebody asked me once, why do I go to the human factors or the Primus meetings? Because I'm like the cell biologist, neurobiologist, and I'm like, so I can learn from you guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ew, what, what, otherwise, why would a data processing person turn up to the Vegas Nerve conference? That's because somebody has to put all the, all the different data bits data together bits. and come out with a whole picture. Yeah, that's why. Yeah. But oh, yeah, is... and that's it. The people coming into the field ought to also consider data processing and really get into that because there's a lot of data. And data is being deposited um, free access now, at least of all NIH-funded data and a lot of journals that are publishing. Data is becoming put out there as free access. Mm. A person who can do data processing and gathering has a really strong future in you know, systematic reviews and systematic meta-analyses mm -hmm. because the data is now available. It's very interesting. I'm reaching out to all my data processing friends. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was it. Um, thank you so much for your time. 
I think we're right on time, actually. Oh, no, we're a little bit late. Sorry a little bit late. My, my, everybody's asking where I'm at. It's okay. I'm going in. Okay, okay, <laughs> I'm looking at, I was looking at my phone. It's blowing up. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, okay. I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for your time and energy. I look forward to seeing you at Primus. You I and just... It's lovely meeting you and talking with you again. Thank yeah. you. Bye. Bye.